Numbers chapter 3. Turning your Bibles there, Numbers chapter 3. Verse 5. Numbers 3 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, so uh, to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. And again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. The Levites shall be mine. Cheryl and I last night sat down and watched the movie The Hiding Place. Anybody, everybody seen The Hiding Place? Uh, who's seen it? Let me raise your hand if you've seen The Hiding Place. Okay, about half of you haven't. We probably should have a movie night sometime and just watch that together. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's the story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy and her father and how they were hiding Jews in 1940 during the time of the Holocaust. They got captured as Christians and sent to a prison camp where they uh, most of them died with the exception of Corey Ten Boom. And she came out and with a life changed uh, began to speak about what happened and especially about how Jesus got her through. The thing that amazed me about this movie and she said something. She said something in an interview um, many years later, back in around 1980. She made the comment that she had never been closer to the Lord nor experienced His presence more before or after that time. So here she was, some almost 40 years later, saying, even after the fact, though the prison camp was awful, horrific, there was death all around, her own sister died there, she had never experienced the presence of the Lord so powerfully as when she was in that prison camp. If you watch the movie, there are lines where, where the two sisters are talking to each other, Corey and, and, and Betsy, and saying to one another, God has stripped everything away. We have nothing else but Him. They were in His presence. Aaron and his sons had a huge job. They were hired as pastors of the largest single church fellowship in history. Think about that. When they got hired on, they were hired into a church of some three million people. The church, they were Jews, right? Yeah, well, the church just means called out. They were 300 people, 300 million people, not 300 million, 3 million people called out. And Aaron and sons were called to be the priests of Israel. But they weren't called to do it alone. As we've read and studied in the book of Numbers and in the book of Leviticus as well, it was Aaron and his sons. It was Aaron and his sons along with the tribe of Levi to assist Aaron and his sons in the priestly ministry. They had the entire tribe helping out, working with them, making the role that they had as the high priestly family, making that role doable. They were set apart 
for the priestly ministry of Israel. What a distinction. Now I want you to ponder this and think about this this morning. For not only did the Levites get the position of serving the Lord and the twelve tribes, but as we studied Wednesday night, and we've said before, the Levites got to camp out closest to the glory of God. The Levites, more than anyone else in Israel, got to be right by the tabernacle. If you read about how the camps were set up, all the other four camps of Israel, with three tribes in each camp, were camped around the tabernacle. The Levites camped right up against it. On the south side, and the west side, and the north side, and the east side. They were right up there, close to it. They literally lived in what I would call Camp Kabod. Camp Kabod. The word Kabod is that Hebrew word for glory. It means substance. It means weight. The substance of God... They got to be right there, near the tabernacle. And my friends, more than anything else I believe in this life, it's God's glory that we hunger for. It's the glory of God that we desire and we seek. That's what we want. Now, we may be driving at all kinds of other things, trying to get filled up, but when that word kabod means substance, that tells us something. There is a filling, a substance that comes with seeking after the glory of God. And the Levites got to be right there, close to the Lord. Close to the presence of His glory. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl last week. We're not going to go into that and spend our time licking our wounds. We're going to move on. But, did you watch the halftime show? When are they going to retire? Is all I have to say. Uh, you know, and, and tell you, back in you know the 80s when, when the Stones did their tour, it was great, powerful, energetic. Now Mick's just going, I mean, it sounds the same as it has for like 10 years. And he still can't get no satisfaction. He is still singing the song. It was, it was, well, my opinion. It was a nice big mouth that they were playing on, though, wasn't that? Kind of cool. Can't get no satisfaction. And he sings the heart of America, gang. He sings the heart of humanity. We can't. We think it's going to be in the next promotion. It's going to be on that next great vacation. It's going to be when my debts are paid down or my illness is healed or my spouse finally learns to appreciate me. I'm not speaking with a personal experience there. If the Seahawks could just win the Super Bowl, then I would be satisfied. Then my life would be a little more complete. Then that's the point I'm reaching for, I'm looking for, and gang, it doesn't happen. It never, we never get there. In every case, as Solomon said, we're just chasing after the wind. And I'm telling you now, because when you get that next promotion at work, and you're very excited about it, you come home and you tell the family, woohoo, I got the promotion, things are going to be good now, just wait. Because it's going to start to burn out. Within months, maybe within weeks or days, and suddenly it's not what you needed it to be. It's just not enough, and you're looking for the next one. We can't get the satisfaction that we desire in life, but you can get it in the glory of God. Because God's glory is satiating. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's substance. His glory can fill us. His glory can give us satisfaction. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7, Solomon said, All a man's labor for his mouth... All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Because the one thing we most deeply desire 
The thing we crave, the thing we hunger for more than anything else, whether we recognize it or not, is the glory of God. To be in His glory. To experience His glory. That, my friends, is what we were created for. That's what heaven is about. Not a place with, you know, pretty things to look at and grass to run on and clouds to float through. It's about being in the presence of the weight of the glory of God and finally being satisfied. And I don't care how long you're a Christian in your life, you will never fully feel that, that hunger fulfilled until we are fully in the presence of God. His glory. His glory. And Levi got it. Levi understood that. The tribe of Levi were allowed that experience. Could wake up every morning and look to the tabernacle and see the weight of God's glory. But I want to ask this morning, why were they singled out? Why Levi, of all the tribes of the sons of Israel, why were they chosen to be that tribe? To be in that priestly ministry? I think it has direct application for us. Look back at verse 12, Numbers chapter 3. The Lord says, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. Now you Bible students know that's not the way it was originally. Levi wasn't just chosen as the priestly tribe from the beginning. No, it was supposed to be all of Israel. It was all of the people. God proclaimed that all the firstborns of every tribe of Israel would be the priesthood. Until something happened. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep on my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. God speaking to Israel, he says, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not a kingdom with a tribe of priests, but a kingdom of priests. God's desire, his heart was for all Israel to be his priestly nation in the world. That among all the children of Adam and Eve, all the sons and daughters of Noah, which includes all of us, we would have a priestly nation among us, the Israelites. And they would be the light to the world that God would speak through. He still has, by the way. Because that's the tribe through whom, that's the people through whom Jesus came and the light came to the world. But every family was originally intended to be connected via their firstborn to the priesthood. The kingdom of priests became a tribal priest instead. Sounds like someone's trying to get a hold of us with that. Okay. So why the change in direction? Why did the Levites get it? Why are the Levites gods as opposed to the rest of the tribes of Israel? What was it that happened? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. Moses was on Mount Sinai. You may recall he spent 40 days up there receiving the law from God, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. But down below, the tribes were getting restless. They were having a few problems. They weren't really sure if Moses was even coming back. Uh, You know, give them a little grace. They're looking up on this fiery mountain. Moses is up there. How do they know he hasn't just been fried alive? 40 days is a long time. Maybe he's not coming back. And so they begin to pester Aaron. Aaron, come on, you can do something for us. Uh, we, we We need a God that we can see. We need something tangible here. And I fully believe this, and we talked about this back when we looked at Exodus, I fully believe that the creation of the molten calf was not supposed to be another God. 
I think the indication in Scripture is Aaron was thinking, let me give them a symbol of the Almighty God. Not another God. We're not going to you know, follow after some one of those pagan gods from Egypt. But if we can have a calf, it's that symbol of strength and authority and power. And then the people can look at that and they can think about God. Which is why in the Ten Commandments, which they were, which they were yet to receive before this happened, it says, you shall have no, no graven image. Not even an image on he- of anything in heaven or on earth. God indicating, not even an image of me. Don't try and assume what I'm like and carve that. But Aaron did. The molten calf was carved. And watch what happens. Look at this, verse 25. Actually, let's go back to verse 21. It's interesting. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. Aaron is passing the buck. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) I mean, you should have seen it, Moses. It was amazing. Wow. So what could we do but worship it, right? Verse 25, Now when Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. No one else stood up. No one else showed up for the sight of the Lord but Levi. All the sons of the tribe of Levi will read on. Watch what else happens. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now if you watch the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston version, they didn't do it that way. No, instead it was a judgment pronounced by God and Moses chucks the Ten Commandments down. They break. The earth opens up, which does happen in another time in Scripture, but not here. It opens up, fire comes out, and all the bad guys fall in. And you watch that Hollywood's version and you go, okay, I can accept that. That's God's judgment. But what would it have really been like? The tribe of Levi gathered around Moses and Moses says, gird up your swords. Get them on, guys. And you go out and you kill friends and you kill neighbors and you kill your fellow countrymen, everyone who is against the Lord. And so one by one, the Levites pull off the swords and begin to drive them through other people in their tribes. Other tribes of Israel. People falling right and left. Blood everywhere. It was a brutal, horrific scene. And we see things like that and we go, oh... That's awful. What's going on here? Well, it's another sermon for another time. But I will say this much. The judgments of God are righteous and true. Always. There was a cancer growing among the people of Israel that needed to be cut out. God knew that. And you might say, well, Rick, that's, that's, that's awful. 3,000 people fell that day. Yeah, it could have been 3 million. It could have been all of the Israelites because they were all involved in this sin. So there's grace in this judgment as well. That's the turning point, though, gang, for Levi. Moses cried out, Who is for the Lord? 
Did Reuben rush to his side? No. Did the tribe of Gad or Simeon? No. Did the tribe of Judah stand up and say, We will fight for the Lord? No. But it was costly. It was costly for Levi, the only tribe willing to do what the Lord commanded, to unsheath the sword and drive it through those who were against the Lord. And I want you to ask yourself a question. If you were in the tribe of Levi that day, would you have done the same? Could you have done the same? If the Lord said, unsheath your sword, and you go among the people at the bridge, (laughs) wouldn't that hit the news quick? Well, the pastor said, who's with the Lord? And I just ran up there and grabbed a sword and started, you know. (laughs) Could you have done it? Could you have been one who was willing to take out the sword and use it for the Lord? The sword. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 tells us the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So let me ask again, are you one who would be willing to stand up and unsheath the sword of God and use it as He calls you to use it? Are you willing to fight for the Lord with His sword? Are you willing to stand with it, even if it involves friends or relatives being hurt or frustrated or upset with you? Because you happen to use the sword on them. You know, the world's favorite verse to quote a Christian is, Judge not, that you not be judged. And if you've ever quoted a verse to someone who is a little bit on the edge, and they turn around and said, You're quoting the Bible to me, Judge not, that you not be judged. And so what do we do as Christians? We become Oscar Milk Toast. You know, I'm just going to go to my church, I'm going to praise and, and enjoy God, but man, when I'm out in the world, i got to keep it quiet. <laughs> i got to keep that sword at home in the safe place, because people get mad at me. I might upset someone if I read scripture. I might bother, well, I've got a tenuous relationship with my dad anyway, so if I start telling him what the word says, that's going to be it. He's going to get mad at me. He very well might. So Rick, what are you saying? That we should be judgmental with God's word? Absolutely not. But gang, listen to this. This is one of those aha moments for me this week. God doesn't need me to make my own judgments about people around me, but I am, uh, I am called to unsheath the sword of the word of God, which in itself is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And gang, sometimes just by living what the Word says, you will stand in judgment of someone else. Not that you intend to. But your very focus on the Lord, your very carrying of the Word, will cause someone else to experience judgment. And you didn't even do anything. The sword is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, which is why we say, and I quote from Paul, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the sword of truth. I don't know what to say to so-and-so in my life to explain to them what they need. The Bible does. Yeah, but when I quote scripture, they get angry. They get hurt. That's what swords do from time to time. They make people uncomfortable. They, they drive stuff out. But the sword of the Word of God is able to incise the heart. It's able to cut surgically where my dumb, bumbling, judgmental words can't. 
You know, when I go off on someone without the word, I can cause all kinds of problems. But if I will keep my own thoughts and intentions and judgments to myself and just rely on the word to be my sword, then whatever happens, it's God's word and not mine. Here's the key to, uh, to accurately handling the sword of the word of God. Here's the key right here. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. Though I, and for I never, neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the key to rightly handling the word of truth. Am I living to seek the favor of men or the favor of God? Paul got it down. Paul knew how to rightly handle the sword. Because he understood something in the, the scheme of things in this world. He understood what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But Proverbs 29.25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. Who do you fear? Are you worried about what people think? Are you concerned about, are you afraid of man around you? Or is your fear rightly directed to the Lord? If your concern is standing for the Lord, like Levi on that day at Sinai, then you will handle the sword correctly, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. Gang, the fear of man is always a concern about pleasing man, while the fear of God is concerned with pleasing the Lord. If you bear the sword of the word as a person after God's own heart, desiring his favor, seeking to please him, then you will bear it well. But if you bear the sword with your own intentions with your own judgments, in the fear of man, gang, you will use it dangerously because the fear of man, and listen to this, the fear of man is the height of selfishness. My concern about what other people think about me is the height of selfishness because where is the focus really at? Right here. Oh, I'm so concerned about what so-and-so is saying about me. I don't want people to think wrongly about me. Me. As opposed to saying, I don't care what someone thinks about me. I care what the Lord thinks about me. I'm concerned about what the Lord desires. My life is about Him, not about myself. Hey, I love my kids way too much to worry that they like me. You get that? Those of you who are parents know exactly what I mean. I love my kids way too much to care if they think I'm their buddy. Oh, Dad's my, he's my pal. He's the fun one in the family. It's mom that we've got to look out for. I'm not concerned about that. And you know what that gets me? That gets me the stairs. It gets me the Napoleon Dynamite size. You know what I'm talking about? The... Hey, Dad. Dad, can I spend the night at a friend's house tonight? No, you were up too late last night. Or the stare. My daughter Hannah's not here today, and she probably won't listen to this tape. Let me tell you, no one can stare you down like Hannah Crawford. <laughs> that girl's got eyes, I'm telling you. And she is the most wonderful girl in the world, and I praise God for her. And by the way, let me just dote on her for a minute. Have you ever watched her worship? Yeah. It just, I, oh, I, I love watching her worship, but man, she's the last person in the world I want to get into an argument with. <laughs> Because she will stare right to the back of your skull until it's hurting back here. But you know what? I don't care. 
I love her too much to want her to like me. And guess what? And I think she would tell you this, maybe not after this morning, but I think she would tell you that she loves her father. Because she matters to me. And I'm not going to worry about, oh no, what does Corey think of me? If I, if I tell him he can't do this or can't do that, if I withhold something or say, no, we're not going to buy that. If I worry all the time about, then I'll be his little buddy. But he will grow up without a father who really loves him. Gang, what about my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is my attitude so much live and let live? I don't want to offend. It's best to let the sleeping dog lie. Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I don't want to be surrounded by guys. You know what, our eldership, I don't want a bunch of yes men. We're dealing with something right now, and we don't all agree. And it's great. Because we have some different opinions, and I would much rather what struggle through something than just have a bunch of guys sitting there in our meetings going, "Yes, Pastor Rick. Yes, Pastor Rick. Let's do what Pastor Rick says." We'd be in a lot of trouble, gang. <laughs> gang, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. Did the Levites love their friends? You bet they did. Did they care about family members, other tribes around them, people they hung out with? You know they did. But they loved the Lord more and they were willing to step out and unsheath the sword for His sake. When no one else were, they were willing to inflict the wounds that needed to be inflicted into the people of Israel. Why? Because the Lord said so. And they were more concerned with following Him than doing what they wanted to do. Yes, 3,000 died, but again, it should have been 3 million. All it takes, you may have heard this, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to stay silent. And so Levi stood up, and Levi ends up sanctified for the blessing of the priesthood. Verse 29 of Exodus 32 tells us, Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. And Levi got a blessing. But this is what interests me about Levi. Of all of the twelve tribes, they should not have been the tribe that did this. If they were following the family pattern, this surprises me, they shouldn't have been the ones who stood up. I would have thought Judah... You know, who ultimately would produce David and down the line Jesus. I would think maybe that tribe would be the one to stand. Or Reuben, the firstborn. They'd be the ones willing to take some responsibility. But no, it's Levi and it's shocking and it's surprising. Why is that? Flip back to Genesis 34. We have to draw a little bit further back into the history of Levi to understand the behavior of Levi and why it is that God chose Levi to be the royal priesthood. Genesis 34. In this chapter, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's the story of a girl, a daughter of Jacob, and Jacob and his 12 sons. The daughter's name is Dinah. And they're living right now, camped out at a place called Shechem. You may recall the story. At Shechem, Dinah was out in the fields one day, and the, the boy named Shechem, after whom the city was named, the son of the ruler, went out. Shechem himself went out, and he raped Dinah. Now, he was passionately in love with her, which doesn't excuse it. But he did love her, and after this all happened, the sons of Jacob were ticked. But Shechem went to them and said, Look, I, I understand what I did, but I, I love Dinah. 
I love, I love her. Can, can I take her as my wife? Well, the sons of Israel said, All right, let's make a deal. You and all of the people, all the men of the town of Shechem, get circumcised because that's our way. That's what the Lord has told us. You get circumcised and you can marry our daughters and we can intermarry and, and, and we can get along. And I think, if you read it, the indication is the sons of Israel intended that as a, as a compromise. Watch what happens. Verse 34 of chapter... No, verse 30 of chapter 34. You know, I need to go back a little bit further. Um, okay, verse 25. Chapter 34. It came about on the third day when they were in pain, that is all the men of Shechem having been circumcised, that's all we need to say about that, when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and they went forth. Jacob's son came upon the slain and looted, city, and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. Down in verse 30, after Jacob hears about it, look what he says to Simeon and Levi. You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. In other words, you guys stink. <laughs> And you make me stink. Now all the inhabitants of the land are going to be against us from this horrible thing you've done. He says, you made a stink among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I'll be destroyed. I and my household. And the story ends there. Seemingly. But now skip ahead to Genesis chapter 49. That is such an impressive sound, isn't it? <laughs> Genesis 49 and verse 5. Now we're at the end of Jacob's life. This is a, a thing that's, that's re- somewhat recent history, but it's history nonetheless. They've gone on, they've survived, they've done okay, and now Jacob's on his deathbed and he is pronouncing blessings and curses on his son. By the way, we're going to look at a curse tonight in the Revelation study. They'll blow your mind right out. You might want to be here for that. It's at 6 o'clock, the commercial's over. Genesis 49, verse 5, tells us the following. Jacob is speaking and he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men. In their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And gang, Joshua 19 tells us when the people went into the land, Simeon never got their own spot. Simeon ends up dispersed among the tribes of Israel. What about Levi? Well, Levi made a great journey of faith from a place called Shechem to a place called Sinai. What do you mean? Look again at verse 6. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Genesis 49, verse 6. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. And where were the Levites? What were they united with? The glory. Not the glory of Jacob, no. The glory of God. But here was the problem back at Shechem. Jacob said, in their self-will, in their self-will, they unsheathed the sword. It was in their self-will. And so in Exodus 32, 
Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Gang, listen, don't miss this. It's how you unsheath and use the sword correctly. At Shechem, Levi the man was all concerned about self-will. At Sinai, Levi the tribe was concerned with God's will. And that's the difference. I want to be, she- I want to be Sinai, Levi. I don't want to be Shechem, Levi. I don't be the one who is so concerned about my will that even when I open up the sword of the word of God, I'm concerned about what it will do for me. No, instead, I want to be Sinai, Levi, opening up the sword according to the will of God. And this is just great. Absolutely amazing. Look at what God does to the curse. He takes the curse that they earned. The generational curse, if you will, that flowed all the way from Levi down through the line to now the tribe of Levi. And God takes that that curse and he turns it into a blessing Romans 8.28 tells us we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who, who are called according to his purpose and because of what happened at Shechem Jacob tore away Levi's inheritance but God restored a better inheritance because of what happened at Sinai what inheritance is that? back in, in uh, Numbers chapter 3 Verse 12, he says, The Levites shall be mine. Their allotment in the land, and throughout the land, when they came into the promised land, their allotment wasn't a plot of land. The allotment of the tribe of Levi was the Lord. The glory. The satisfaction that we were talking about as we began this morning. They got what everybody really wants. It's not just land that I need. I need the Father. I want to be around and near, close to the temple. Levi got to be spread out throughout all the land of Israel, locationally, as representatives, as priests of the Lord Himself. Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 28 tells us, It shall be with regard to an inheritance for them that I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. Isn't that wonderful? So Jacob said, they don't get an allotment of the land. And God said, okay, they don't need an allotment of the land. I'm going to give them an allotment of myself because they acted in my will and not in self-will. They became the elevated tribe encamped around the glory. They were promised the fulfillment and satisfaction that people all long for. It's the glory of God because they cared about pleasing God and not about pleasing man. So Rick, are you suggesting that we go around swinging the sword? I'm suggesting that we stand up for the Lord. I'm suggesting we reject the notion of so-called soft-bellied Christians who really don't know what we believe. We can't handle the book because we don't know what's in the book. I have read some stunning things recently that Bible teachers so-called actually are teaching and, and believe and say. And if you look at what Scripture says, it's not even close. You can know the Word if you are in the Word. And I'm suggesting this morning that we learn to bear the sword according to the will of God. Listen to this, I'm almost done. Levi the man, Levi the man was angry, bitter, frustrated with his, with his uh, sister's rape. Angry at Shechem. He's wanted to take these people out. It's what his heart wanted. Levi the tribe at Sinai was completely and fully and fully and completely in the will of God. And I think about when I was a young Christian and how many arguments I got into, into with people. How often I would sit literally at, on campus in high school with my Bible open trying to explain to people how wrong they were. Especially the other Christians who went to other churches and not mine. 
Let's show you what the word really says about how you're living in sin, fellow brother in Christ. And I would argue with people. The problem wasn't it got me nowhere. The problem was it was about proving that I was right. That was my concern. Trying to prove that I'm right in what I believe and what my particular brand of church teaches. And so we're going to open the word and that's where we're going to go. And it's got to be about proving I'm right. And I would get angry and frustrated. I got into a shouting match with a guy one time in high school. He was a great witness. <laughs> Two Christians, you know, hashing it out right there in the lunchroom. Everybody else going, couple of idiots. And I was using the sword. But it was about self-will. I wanted myself proved right. Listen to this. James chapter 1, verse 20. A good thing to get in your head. James 1.20 tells us, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Wow. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, James says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. i got a problem with that. Because Jesus was angry. Wasn't it Jesus who went into the temple and turned over the tables and pulled out the whip and drove the animals out and the money changers out in a fury? I mean, you read that. He was hopping mad. He was angry. He was so angry that this one little Galilean carpenter was driving everybody out of the temple. Better get out of his way, dude. That man's hot. He's angry. Wasn't Jesus acting out of anger? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but I'll tell you this, the anger of God does. And Jesus was angry in a godly way. It's interesting, if you read the story, John chapter 2 tells us, Jesus went in, came into Jerusalem at the beginning of that last week, and went to the temple and looked around, saw everything as it was, and then he went home. And the next morning he came back, and he drove the money changers out of the temple. This was not a fit of anger. Jesus was angry, but he was angry with a right reason, and he even said, as he was doing this, the apostles looked, and John tells us in John chapter 2, they realized what the scriptures meant when it said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus' anger at the money changers in the temple was all driven by his passion for the Lord, his love for God, and what he did was right. Oh, it was uncomfortable. I can imagine Peter, James, and John looking at each other going... Are we following the right guy here? This is a little crazy. Suppose we're going after the Romans, not the temple. What's going on? But Jesus had a righteous anger at Shechem. Levi the man had the right, thought he had the right to bear the sword of revenge. He didn't. But at Sinai, Levi the tribe was given the right to bear the sword by God in righteousness. And gang, that's effective ministry. When the sword is used according to the will of God, not according to the will of Rick or any one of us, not according to our will, but according to God's will. And as we do so, we find satisfaction in His glory because the more we bear the sword for the Lord, the closer to the Lord we get. And we get to camp out by that awesome glory of God. We get the satisfaction. So I encourage you not to bear the sword of Shechem, the sword of self-will. Bear the sword of Sinai, the sword of God's will. Father, as we 
process this. We consider what it means to rightly handle the word of truth. I pray, Father, you would give us a boldness, uh, Lord, mixed with grace. And a passion for righteousness mixed with compassion, Lord. Then as we bear the sword in our families, with our friends, as we open up scripture, as we quote your word, we would do so, Father, with hearts of love. We would do so with a desire to please you and to serve you and not ourselves. God, move me from Shechem to Sinai. Move me from my will into your will. Because God, there's nothing I want in this world more than to be in the presence of your glory. It's what I need, it's what I desire. But God, I need you to bring me there. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.